Name the seven founding fathers. The seven founding fathers? Yeah. Hmm. And what trained animals helped guard the U.S. nuclear arsenal? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. Well, Marsha, seven founding fathers. Yes. I think I saw something about that. This was a historian who named the seven, right? Yes, Richard Morris, the historian in 1973. Okay. He identified these seven figures as key founders based on a series of tests he did. And actually, he looked at them as the leaders who produced the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Okay, let me give you my take on that. Okay. I think we've got to have, of course, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote it, John Adams, who was involved in the writing of it, too, uh-huh. as was, uh, let's see, uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh-huh. Uh, then you probably have... Uh, is Alexander Hamilton in that he group? He is. Okay. So that's one, two, three, four. So I need three more. Jo- George Washington. Got it. And then who would be the other two? Yep. One was a president and one wasn't. Uh, John James Madison. Correct. And then would be... This one you've always read about, this guy. I always read he, about him. He always comes up in all the documentaries. Aaron Burr. <laughs> no. Okay. John Jay. Oh, John Jay, yes, who became the Supreme Court Justice of the United States. Yeah, so it was John Jay, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Ben Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. Those are considered the original seven founding Founding fathers. fathers. Yeah. Okay. Hey, you know, I have a question on that. Okay. Who came up with the term founding fathers? Well, oddly enough, I don't know that. Okay, let me tell you a little (laughs) bit about that, all right? This was a future president as well. And it wasn't until 140 years after the revolution began that that phrase became popular. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Warren G. Harding, he was a U.S. senator, he first coined the phrase founding fathers, and he did it in a keynote speech for the Republican National Convention in 1916. Oh, yeah. Before that, terms such as the fathers, the founders, and founders of the republic were used, but not founding fathers. In fact, Some of the founding fathers didn't like that kind of term. Did you know that? No. John Adams in 1811, responding to praise for his generation, said, Don't call me father or founder. These titles belong to no man but to the American people in general. So founding father, the term, has only been around since 1916. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. It's not something that would come out at the time, is it? Mm Mm-mm. I've got a couple more. Wait a minute. My question now. Oh, fine. My my teaser question. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You did have a teaser. That's right. What was it, Bob? What trained animals help guard the U.S. nuclear arsenal? (laughs) Believe it or not. What trained animals help guard the U.S. nuclear arsenal? Dogs. No. Lions. (laughs) <laughs> no. Well, sea lions do help the government, but that's not what really? this is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, let me think. I'll tell you where this is. This is in Washington's Puget Sound. Oh, okay. Oh, so then n- near Seattle. It, okay. So whales. No? No. No. Dolphins. Symbol- <laughs> dolphins, yes. <laughs> really? Yes. According to Britannica.com, now this is at the naval base Kitsap 
in Washington's Puget Sound, Washington State, that's home to one quarter of the U.S. stockpile of nuclear weapons. You didn't know that. No. You have your friends in Seattle living near a big blow up there. Yeah, it's there that <laughs> trained dolphins monitor the water near the base. They do it round the clock and alert guards to suspicious activity. Really? Yeah. How do they alert them? Well, I had to look a little deeper to find this. And on military.com, I found a story. They protect the naval base Kitsap from mines by using biological sonar. So if a dolphin detects a mine or some other explosive, the dolphin returns to the handler who gives the animal a buoy to mark the location of the device on the surface of the water. Then Navy Explosives Ordnance Disposal Divers dive in and investigate and hopefully neutralize the threat. If a dolphin detects a diver intruder, if somebody's under the water swimming towards that naval base, uh-huh. dolphins will swim up to them, bump into them, and place buoy devices on their backs or me? a limb. Come on. No, they use their mouth and they attach a buoy to their limb or their back, and then the buoy drags the outed diver to the surface for easy capture. Is and that true? It's true, and it, it's because that naval base houses the largest single nuclear weapons site in the world. The U.S. has 9,952 nuclear warheads, and 25% of them are there. So it needs protection from all sides, including from the sea. So that's where the Navy dolphins and sea lions come in. They've been yeah. defending the waters around the stockpile since 2010. Wow, that blows my mind. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Bob, what percentage of Americans don't have landlines anymore? What percentage of Americans don't have landlines anymore? I think we've gone past the 50% mark, haven't we? No, it's 73% don't have them. Three out of four people got rid of their landlines. Wow. So only about 25% of people have landlines? Yeah, we are in the minority. You and I could probably get rid of it now. The way we keep losing our phones around the house. We got two cell phones. You can call the other one. Where the hell's the other cell phone? I know, but what if you're not here and I can't find mine and the kids want to call? Then you're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that's just due to your mistakes. It's cheap, Bob. It's cheap and it's I think it's a better connection, too. Like I said, 73%, that's three out of four, don't have them. It's a number that has tripled since 2010, according to Bloomberg survey. Man. Now, this will surprise you. States like New York and Maryland have the highest number of landlines yet, Hmm. still in use. And states like Idaho, Texas, and Mississippi have the least. You know, I would think that's because New York, big business, lots of businesses there. And Maryland, close to Washington, lots of government agencies. So they would say, no, we're keeping our landlines. Okay, I never think of that. And what were the states with the least? Least were Texas, Mississippi, Idaho, well, so these are big states, generally large spaces with, uh, you know, sparser populations for the yeah. most part. Well, not Although Texas, Texas has yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. More frontiers. Out on the frontier, people sure. are going, we don't need those landlines. Let's say that, sure. Okay, Marcia, <laughs> we've done this before a couple of times, but I think it's always nice to bring up during the Independence Day period of time. What was the average age of the signers of the Declaration of Independence? Do you remember that? It was, yes, somewhere around 35, 34. No. 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 No? You're wrong. (laughs) Okay, so. You have such relish when you say that. You have to remember, they they range from 26 to 70, because the oldest was Ben Franklin. The youngest were 26, so the average age was 44. Oh, okay. But there were a dozen of the signers who were younger than 35. But the the youngest guys were Thomas Lynch and Edward Rutledge. They were delegates from South Carolina. They were 26. 
And how about the uh, other people who were involved in the revolution? Marquis de Lafayette, how old was he when he that was, was signed? I remember him. He was, well, he was 20s. 18. Oh, jeez. And Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> he was, well, I saw the play, so I should know this. I don't know. He was only early 20s. Yeah, 21. John Hancock was 39. Even King George of England was only 38 in 1776. So why do we think of these founding fathers as older people? Historian David McCullough points out that the only visuals we have of them were painted when they were much older by people like Gilbert Stuart oh, yeah, and John yeah. Trumbull. Right. But guess what? At the time of the Declaration, the painters were young. Gilbert Stuart and John Trumbull were just 20 years old at 1776 when the revolution began. Mm. It'd be years before they painted the Founding Fathers, and in the meantime, everyone would age. Revolution is a young person's game, as David McCullough says. All right. We've talked about this before, and I've always found it fascinating that two of our presidents died on 4th of July on the 50th anniversary of the... uh, Signing of the Declaration of Independence. Yes. John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson. That's correct. But there was a third that died on July 4th, Bob Smith. Bob Smith was president? I didn't know that. A third president. (laughs) Oh, okay. A third president died on that date? Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, Calvin Coolidge was born on that date, but who died on that day? I don't know. What's the answer? Okay. It was James Monroe. Oh, really? Yeah. He died only five years later in 1831. So he's the third president to die on July 4th. Wow. Okay. Isn't that interesting? It is, yeah. And he was known for the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine, right. And what was that? He stated that European powers need to just stay out of American waters. All the North and South America will take care of ourselves. Well, good for you. That's right. Yeah. Said the U.S. would not tolerate further colonization or puppet monarchs. That was the end of it. Don't even think. Of it. <laughs> All right, Marcia. Here's another one that's related to Independence Day. The term United States of America. Who coined that? And guess what? It wasn't by an American. Who oh, was the person? France? No. I, I got, who who I, is person, the person? Person. Here's a hint. He was a famous author, and he did take part in the Winston revolution. Winston Churchill. No. And he did, did. take part. <laughs> okay. Don't jump the gun. He was not an American, but he did take part in the American Revolution. Who was he? Lafayette. What did Lafayette write that makes you think he was an author? The stories of Lafayette. No, no. <laughs> and everyone knows that No, no, book. no. No, I... it's Thomas Paine. Oh, really? He wrote the popular pamphlet Common Sense. He was the person who coined the expression the United States of America. I didn't know that. What, where did he come from? England? Yeah, from England. And you could say that Ben Franklin may have shared in some of the credit for oh, that I'm term sure. because it was Ben Franklin who encouraged Thomas Paine to move to America. He lived his first 37 years in London. Yeah. Ben had a lot to do with a lot of things in the early days. That's interesting. Wonderful person. Thomas Paine. Did you ever read that, his papers? Common sense, yes. It's yeah. really glorious. I mean, it, you want to just stand up and go, yes! Yes. That it's only, amazing. Yes, if only people could be that articulate today. He gave the Americans the battle cry. Here's what you got here. And that's what you need in times of woe and trouble is someone that can rouse you. But if you read about Thomas Paine, he was a little bit of a difficult person too. He wanted to be paid for by the Congress as the official writer of the... (laughs) Yeah, he went for all kinds of things like, nah, Tom, you got great ideas, great words here, but no, 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 no. But that was a bestseller, that pamphlet. Yeah. It sold all over the colonies. I read it so long ago, but I remember being very impressed. Okay, Marsh. All right. What president appointed the first female cabinet member? 
the first female cabinet member was, I think it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wasn't it? Correct. She's the uh, Treasury Secretary. What was her name? No, it wasn't. Oh, Secretary of Labor? Right. What's her name? Frances Perkins. There you go. <laughs> I knew it was Perkins, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty impressed that you knew that, Bob. Well, thank you. Yeah, she went on to serve uh, as Labor Secretary, the longest of anyone in that position for 12 years. Wow. Till 1945. Pretty far-sighted for FDR to do that. He did so many different things during the uh, Great Depression. Of course, mm. he had kind of had the freedom to do it. There was just the country was almost, you know, bordering on uh, insurrection. It was a real difficult time. Yeah. Hey, let's get back to dolphins, okay? Because hey, they yeah. are fascinating. Aren't oy, they? Oy, oy. <laughs> okay. Now, you may not know this, but dolphins are held in such high esteem, they are the mascot for one of the Navy's most elite fighting forces. Step oh. aside, Navy SEALs. Meet, I was going to say, is it Meet the, the Army? Navy Dolphins. <laughs> really? So, yeah. That's what the members of the elite U.S. submarine force are known. They're called Dolphins. And they earn their status by mastering the vast array of systems aboard a submarine in a process called qualifying. And then their veterans wear hats and vests and shirts and even buckles adorned with submarine dolphins. No kidding. Well, when did this come about? Well, this is interesting. This goes back almost 100 years now. <laughs> Can you believe that? No, I thought it just happened. No, submarine warfare insignia is considered one of the most difficult to earn in the Navy. They pictured a surfaced O-class submarine flanked by two dolphins resting their heads on the deck of the submarine. <laughs> it's been the insignia since 1924. So dolphins go back as far as being associated with the Navy for almost 100 years now. Okay. All right, last presidential question, Bob. Okay. Name the two future presidents to sign the Declaration of Independence. And we'll answer that question <laughs> after this for the off-ramp. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marsha. Put your Google search away, Bob. Okay, we'll be back in just a moment. Let me just take my phone here. I'm Robert Rickman, host of OK Boomer. Yes, we like to entertain you with colorful features, boomer history, and brain fog, but we also tell you about serious stuff such as... The amount of money taken in from property taxes continues to rise. The actual percentage allocated to senior centers is declining. We search all week for news boomers need to know and make it available to you on OK Boomer. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. OK Boomer! Okay, we're back again with uh, the off-ramp. We do this for the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and its internet radio station. One of the few, if not the only, owned by a uh, library in the world. It's the only. Okay, Marsh. You've, uh, you've researched all this? I did. Okay. You visited every library in the world and said, Excuse me, do you have a <laughs> Excuse me. web radio station? Hi, I'm Marsha Smith. Okay. <laughs> all right. All okay. right, you have a question about yes. uh, two can, pr presidents, can, right? Yeah. What two presidents signed the Declaration of Independence? What future presidents? Yeah. Okay. John Adams and yep. Thomas Jefferson. Da-da. Okay, now name the two different ones that signed the Constitution. Okay, different presidents who signed the Constitution. Different future presidents. Okay, James Madison. Yes. And uh, let's see, one more. James Madison and... George Washington? That's it. Okay, yeah. because You he, did it. All right. You are my presidential scholar in-house. Well, and, James uh, Madison took all these notes that were published years later. He, uh -huh. he kept a diary. And then, of course, the head of that, that whole convention, the person in charge of it, was George Washington. So that's why I knew. Okay. okay. Well, yeah. Oh, plus, you read everything about every president. And, well, not and you are the in-house 
presidential scholar. There's only two of us here, Marsh. I know. Okay. Well, it's not hard, is it? <laughs> okay. All right. I've got a, a question, not about a president, but about a war, okay? Uh-huh. This uh, came to light recently. I've seen pictures of it, and I'd never heard of this before. What part did a dish towel play in ending the American Civil War? Well, funny you should say that. Why? I have no idea. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because it was used as a flag of truce. Was it a white one? It was white, yes. It still exists, or parts of it still exist. Who waved it? Well, it was a Confederate. Yeah, but who? Well, here's the story. Okay. Union troops were surrounding Robert E. Lee's forces in Virginia in April of 1865, and Lee decided the jig's up. So he sent a staff officer, R.M. Sims, across enemy lines to ask for a ceasefire so Lee could meet with Union General Ulysses S. Grant. And to pass through the Union lines safely, General Lee handed Sims a fringed white dish towel, which Sims carried with him. Uh, Okay. So he could wave it like, okay, you know, leave me alone. Don't shoot me. Don't kill me. And after the surrender at Appomattox, Sims was asked by the Union Colonel Whitaker for the towel to preserve its role in history. And guess what his response was? I'll see you in hell first. I shall not let you preserve it as a monument to our defeat. Well, somehow the white dish towel did end up in Union hands. Well, it's not like Grant walked over and handed him, you know. Give me that thing. Some dishes that needed drying. (laughs) But according to... To National Geographic, after the war, the Union General Philip Sheridan presented that flag of truce to General George Custer's wife, Elizabeth, and then when she died, she donated it to the United States National Museum. So it's been in the uh, American collection since 1936. Okay. Now, you might ask this question, Marcia. I might, but probably not. Why didn't they just use an official flag of truce? Because they didn't have one handy. Somebody used it for something else. Well, the reason is... A bandage. According to flag expert James Farragan, (laughs) armies never issue truce flags because they'd be counterproductive to morale. It is. That's why if things aren't going your way and you have to chat with the guys with the bigger guns, you have to find something else. Yeah. Is that a pair of BVDs I see? What is that? Underwear there. Yeah. So throughout history, truce flags, they're known as flags of parley. That's the, in other words, we want to talk, Mm -hmm. have overwhelmingly been household items like towels, sheets, and pillowcases. And today, a portion of that white dish towel, which is yellowed with age, is now in a glass case on the third floor of the National Museum of American History. And that's how a dish towel played a part in ending the Civil War. I was afraid it's going to be something we'd be seeing next week at the Grant Museum in Galena we're going to. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. Okay, Bob, the Chinese social media currently is full of a new dining craze. What is being served along with your stir-fry today in the more trendy restaurants in Hong Kong? Well, stir-fry is vegetables. Yeah, but this is something... Something new. Something totally... A new ingredient. Well, it's not even an ingredient. It's an object. Really? Oh, yeah. It's been dubbed, according to CNN, the world's hardest dish. Do they put rocks? Yes! What? (laughs) That's it. A traditional stir-fry featuring stones as its key ingredient has sparked culinary curiosity on Chinese social media. Oh, my goodness. Oh, they do come up with some fun things, don't they? Patrons are supposed to suck on small rocks to relish the rich and spicy flavor of the dish. Suck off the flavor and then (laughs) spit out the rocks. Oh, (laughs) jeez. 
You can take them home as a souvenir, too. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yes, I got these at uh, La Mata. Yeah, well, of course, the... you have to pay for them. <laughs> Customers are served the flavored stones in little palm-sized boxes. Flavored each, stones? Each costs about 16 yen, or $2.30. <sighs> okay. This custom of sucking stones goes back hundreds of years, and it was passed down from starving boatmen putting spices on stones so they had some kind of nourishment. Gee whiz, that sounds horrible. It does. <laughs> okay, speaking of food, what is the official state snack of Texas? And Marcia, unlike you, I have hints. Okay? <laughs> Baby back ribs, yeah. chips and salsa, chicken wings, or jalapeno peppers. Which one is the official chicken state wings. snack? What? Chicken wings. No. Uh, jalapeno peppers. No. Okay, I'll tell you the answer now. Okay, the answer is? What were the other two? <laughs> chips and salsa or chicken it's wings? Salsa. Chips and salsa. You're right, it is. Good on the third try. <laughs> yeah, the Texas state legislature made tortilla, chips, and salsa the state's official snack 20 years ago in 2003. Do you know the snack for Wisconsin? No, what is it? Fried cheese curds. Of course. Yep. Back to Texas. <laughs> the jalapeno is the state's official pepper. Their official vegetable is the sweet onion. And the Texas state fish is the Guadalupe bass. So wow, they have something for every They do. Possible. They have culinary treasures. <laughs> Those are actually pretty good, aren't they? Uh-huh. So that's all about Texas eating. Okay. Robert. Yes. Can you or can you not grow new brain cells? Can you? Oh, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> that, that was the answer. Or can you not? Uh, I always heard you couldn't grow new brain cells. That's right. I'm sorry. What's your answer? I forgot. I, I lost my brain cells. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me the answer. Until the 1990s, Bob, most scientists believed 100 billion cells was all we'd ever have. That's I don't it. Know, no more. I don't know who counted them. Wow. Growing new neurons would interrupt communication, they thought, with our existing brain cells. But now they've tossed that theory out the window. Okay. And in 1998, a study found evidence that humans could generate new cells in the brain's hippocampus. Thank Hi God. Is that how you say it? Hippocampus? That hippocampus, that's on the back of the campus. That is. Back it's there a, by the, uh, the, the power plant and the stadium. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an area in your brain associated with learning and memory. Okay. And the more recent studies have largely supported the idea, Bob, that suggests we might be able to make 1,500 neurons a day. Wow. Uh, just through... Uh, this is this is interesting news to yes, all yes. of us who grew up thinking anytime you got drunk, you were destroying brain cells. That's right, and, and, and they never grow back. As each drink goes, yep. you're stupider, stupider, yes. stupider. But no, yeah. now maybe you can grow new ones. That's right. Uh, brain a, cells, I'm talking that's about. That's right. Yeah. That's a, there's a joke there. Okay. Uh, growing fresh neurons make our brains more resilient against Alzheimer's, depression, anxiety, and other disorders. So okay. keep on learning, keep on reading, keep on trying to figure things out. Keep growing those brain cells. <laughs> All right, Marcia, I have a question for you on yes. evolution. Yes, dear. What animal is believed to have escaped dinosaur-killing animals? Asteroids. This animal is still with us. Oh yes, yes. What's the animal? The uh, the uh, is it the roach? No. Is it? Uh, oh, it's uh, ants. No. Mosquitoes. No. Bigger. Bigger. Have a shell. Turtles. Turtles. That's according to Britannica.com. About eighty percent of today's known turtle species survived the asteroid impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. So. Apparently, they think that there are a few other things that survived that that are still around, but the turtles are. 
Didn't know that. Okay, now what's the difference between a turtle and a tortoise, Marcia? Well, age? No. Tortoises are older turtles? No, that's not it. (laughs) You're making fun, Bob. Uh, Yes, I am. I don't know the difference. Is that what you want to hear? Uh, No, I want you to come up with an idea. Do they have a different shell? No. Tortoises and turtles are both reptiles Mm -hmm. whose bodies are encased in a bony shell, but tortoises are land creatures... Turtles may live on land or water. Tortoises are generally vegetarians. Ah. And turtles are omnivorous. They'll eat anything, meat, vegetables, you name it. Finally, two more things. Tortoises don't go in the water? Tortoises live on land. Huh. And here's another thing. There are anatomical differences. You may think they look alike because, well, they're both in a shell and you don't see a whole lot of them. But tortoises, because they are exclusively land creatures... They have elephantine or columnar limbs and feet, those big, thick things in the back, okay? Yeah. Turtles, because they can live on land or in water, their forearms are flipper-like and their hind feet are webbed. So the easiest thing is to look at the web feet in the back. Say, okay, that's a turtle. No kidding. So that helps it swim. But it doesn't need that. If it's going to live on land, it'll be a tortoise. Okay. Here's one you probably thought about earlier today. What's the origin of the word window? Oh, that's a good one. What's the origin of the word window? It's so It sounds mundane, but it's actually, you'll no, like I, the answer. No, I like things like this. Because yeah? like, where did that word come from? Window. So window is known as an opening. So it must go back to something meaning opening or a hole, probably Greek or Latin. I don't know the answer. What's the answer? Well, I'd love to hear you say that. I don't know the answer. Uh-huh. Early no- I don't know the answer. <laughs> I'm grinning from ear to ear. Yes. Early Norse homes, Bob were simply designed and often included a stable for livestock under the same roof. So you got your bed here, and then you got your cows right next to you, Uh, just so you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, (laughs) okay. Come winter, when the doors are shut tight, it got a bit smoky from the fire and a bit stinky from the animals. I would think so. So the Norse, they they build holes high on the walls. Uh, and under the roof for ventilation, they put holes way up high Okay. To uh, for ventilation. And they called these openings Vindra Agua. It meant the wind's eye. The wind's eye. Yeah. And when the British copied the practice, they modified the word into the word window. Wow. Now, tell me how they spelled that. The, the Norse spelled the other one. The, uh, the original name. Vinder, uh, V-I-N-D-R, and Agua. A-U-G-A. Wow. So that meant the wind's eye. Which is very poetic, isn't it? It is poetic. Yeah. The wind's eye. Yeah. Honey, go wash the wind's eye for me today. That's right. (laughs) I want you to squeegee that wind's eye. But (laughs) they probably didn't have any glass in it, so it it changed. But the the British changed it to windows. Yeah. Okay. Of course. But, you know, modified the word. Yes. Yes. All right, Marcia, I have a thought for the day. I know you have thoughts, but this comes from uh, my cousin Roger Moore of uh, Haydenville, Ohio, had this uh, sign that he shared on Facebook, and I think it's funny. It's a pun sign, okay? Okay. It says, don't tell secrets in the garden. The potatoes have eyes, the corn has ears, and the beans talk. Beanstalk. <laughs> so thanks to Roger of uh, Haydenville for that. That's I thought it was kind of cute. Yeah, don't don't tell any secrets there. <laughs> Potatoes have eyes, corn have ears, and the beans talk. I got uh, three quotes. Gloria Steinem, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's good. Groucho Marx, 
people are born alike, except Republicans and Democrats. Oh, that's true. <laughs> they're totally different. That's right. That's why we're well, independent. Those are both good. I got one more from George Carlin. Okay. In America, anyone can be president. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the problem. All right, that's great. Well, if you'd like to contribute to our show, like Roger did with that quote. Be part or, of the problem. Yeah, be part of the problem here. <laughs> you can go to our website, theofframp.show, scroll all the way down to contact us and leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Just send a thought. Please send something. <laughs> I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with another half hour of fun-filled facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.